at a prayer conference because that really doesn't have anything to do with them personally. Um, their prayers are focused primarily on their needs and their blessings and their happiness and, and joy and contentment. It's, it's a me-first faith. and how can, Basically, the question is, how can God make my life more comfortable? And that's the focus of worldliness. But a world-class Christian is one who knows that we have been saved to, be, to serve, and we have been made for a mission, and we, we look for ways to serve, and we look for ways to take the gospel into the, into the world for those who are outside the kingdom of God. It's a, it's a focal point. It's not that God doesn't want to bless you. It's not that God doesn't you know, want you to ask for personal things, but is that my focus, or is my focus on those who are outside the kingdom? And really, that's where we have to redirect our attention towards as we are seeking to reach people. And so the very first fill in your blank on that page is we are called to be on mission. And there's a lot of ways you can do this. I mean, now with the internet and um, social media, and there's just so much that is out there that helps us in sharing the, the mission, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I, I put in a section on, you know, what on earth is God doing? And I, I've given you some stats, although many of these have changed and this has not been updated. But Barna Research is going to be here uh, in Columbus on October the 12th and update our demographic here in Columbus. What's going on? What's God doing? And even beyond here. But how does this affect how we do evangelism? How does it affect how we do a lot of things as a church? But Christians in the world right now have surpassed uh, 2 billion, right? about 2.7 billion. The problem is the world population continues to increase, which I just checked it this week. It's 7.8 billion people on the face of this planet. That means that less than a third of humanity are followers, authentic followers of Jesus Christ. And so as we look at the world's situation, um, there are four words that best describe the unreached people in our, in our world. Um, and that would be at least this was in the past, it was like Asian, urban, Islamic, although we see many, many people in the Islam faith coming to faith in Christ. And here's the big one, youth under age 20. Um, so we know that children from the, about the age 8 to 12 are the most open to the gospel, but then when kids hit about age 18 to 19, they tend to fall away from the faith. Because now they're trying to figure out, figure out, is this my faith or was this my parents' faith that I, that I adapted as my life? Uh, because I was made to go to church and, you know, I didn't really have a choice in the matter. But now I have a choice in the matter. I'm choosing not to follow or to follow. And that's a struggle for them at that age. And so from about age 18 to 23, there's, there's oftentimes a gap where kids pull away from the faith as they're trying to navigate that for themselves. Uh, I, I looked up in, uh, from our um, international mission board, the three or the two fastest growing, or actually three fastest growing um, countries that have the fastest growing Christianities, which growing leaps and bounds is South America, Africa, and Asia. Um, I've, I've shared with you before, um, I have a friend who is a full-time evangelist who goes to Ethiopia every year. And for the past four years, he says, we are seeing numbers of people coming to faith in Christ like we have never seen before. It is just phenomenal. The fastest declining countries are Western Europe, Canada, and the United States. 
So we have our work cut out for us. You know, why is it the United States is pulling back? And so the fastest growing religion is known as the knowns, which means that they just want no religious affiliation. They just want to be religious and however they define that. So on page 31, the problem is not in the harvest. The problem is the lack of harvesters. You know, people are ready to receive Christ. What is missing, Jesus said, even in his day and time, is that the harvesters are reluctant to get out into the harvest. And when he said to his disciples, hey, pray that the Lord of the harvest will send out harvesters, guess who he was looking at while he was saying this? It was them. So the biggest shame would be if we were equipped to do something but went out and did nothing about what we have been equipped to do. So I want you to go to page 33, because if there's going to be a shift in our actions, there must be a shift in our feelings. And if there's going to be a shift in our feelings, there has to be a shift in our thinking. Right? The way you think always affects the way you feel, which affects the way that you act ultimately. So I think there's five mind shifts uh, or shifts in our thinking if we're going to move from being a you know, worldly Christian to being a you know, world missions. That is, we're, we're engaging in what is important to God, and people are important to God. Everything else in this world is temporary. People are not. People are eternal, and therefore God has a heart for that which is eternal. So number one, we have to shift our thinking from self-centeredness to God-centeredness. Self-centeredness to God-centeredness. There is nothing more important than being in love with Jesus. We need to say, you know what, God, what would you do with my life if I really picked up my cross every day and died to self and allowed you through your Holy Spirit to direct and guide my life throughout the course of the day? If that was really the, the center of our thought process rather than just focusing on my goals and my ambitions and my dreams and my needs and my desires and plans and ego if I ask the question, God, what did you put me here on earth for? And, of course, the answer to that question is to bring glory to God. This is what the Bible teaches us. How do I bring glory to God? We've talked about this before. We bring glory to God by worshiping him. We bring glory to God by loving others. We bring, bring glory to God by becoming like Christ. We bring glory to God by serving others with our gifts. And we bring glory to God by telling others about him. So I don't know about you, but I want to live the rest of my life and make the best of my life by living for God's agenda. I'm 63 years old. I know I'm on the backside of my life. I don't know how many more years I have left, but I want to go out on top, right? I don't want to go out, oh, I'm just going to, you know, kind of skate my way through the rest of life. So here's what it says. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will receive power and you will tell people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. For the Holy Spirit, God's gift does not want you to be afraid of people, but to be wise and strong and to love them and enjoy being with them. If you will stir up this inner power, you will never be afraid to tell others about the Lord. Really what Paul says here is that the number one proof that we are filled by the Spirit it's not just that we are, and being controlled by the Spirit is by what gifts we have, but by whether or not we are sharing the gifts that we have. Are we sharing the message of the gospel of Jesus? And so there has to be a shift. Number two, we must shift from our thinking from local orientation to global orientation. You say, well, how can I do that? How can I live globally? Because the world has come to Columbus. The world is here. 
I just received word, actually a statement of how many Afghans that were um, refugees are going to be planted here in Columbus. It's nearly 300, and there's probably a particular area in Columbus that they will be planted, and so it's a strategic way that we can reach into the hearts and the lives of those people, and I'm, I'm sure, I don't know um, demographically where they're going to be placed, but I certainly know they're coming to this area. And so we want to watch world news, as I said, through missionary eyes and then pray. Um, Acts 17, Paul said, from one man, God created all the nations throughout the whole world. He decided beforehand which would rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. His purpose in all of this was that the nations should seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. So one of the ways you begin thinking globally is you begin praying for specific countries. I, I never know if you've ever thought about this. Do you ever pray for any country other than our own? Do you pray for our missionaries who are in those countries? For, to, to me, to help me, uh, I got a book, and it's, it's a book, and it's, it's got all the different countries. You don't want you never realize how many countries there are in this world until you get a book on, that lists out all the different countries and gives you a little synopsis about them and what's going on, what God's doing there, and mission groups and so on and so forth. It just helps me to pray globally rather than just locally or just for our own nation. Um, prayer is the most important tool for our mission work around the world. What should we pray for? Well, the Bible tells us to pray for opportunities to witness, to pray, for courage to speak up, for those who will believe, for the, the rapid spread of the message, and for more workers. We have a, we have a church in Powell, a new church plant that um, began um, just asking for donations of old furniture, right? Furniture that you were getting rid of, and then they, they deliver it to people who are moving into the Columbus area from other countries for free. And uh, it's amazing. God is just like quadrupled that ministry, and uh, Aaron Taylor is the pastor there. It's uh, Living Hope Church, and, and uh, God has uh, so blessed him that he and his wife were invited by a Pakistani couple to a 50th birthday celebration, which is really, it's, that's like high and holy to them, right? So, um, and so he is making headway into a foreign countries because they simply deliver furniture to people in need, which gives them the opportunity to share the gospel. Number three, we must shift our thinking from temporary values to eternal values. Anyone who lets himself get distracted from the work I plan for him is not fit for the kingdom. We get distracted easily. I do, you do. Um, we just don't want to trade our lives for temporary things because what God has before us is eternal. Number four, we must shift our thinking from security to service. Only those who throw away their lives for, the, for my sake and for the sake of the good news will ever know what it means to really live. Again, do you know what's dearest to the heart of God? Because we're going to celebrate it. The death of his son, Jesus Christ, who shed his blood for us. And the second dearest thing to the heart of God is when his children tell others about why Jesus died on the cross and how that has impacted our lives. So Hebrews reminds us, let us strip off everything that slows us down, that holds us back. Let us run with patience the race that God has set before us. 
So whatever it is that stands in our way from fulfilling the mission, in essence, he's saying, get rid of it. Take it off. Pull it back. We have a job. We have a mission that God has given to us that we need to fulfill. Number five is we must shift our thinking from comfort to sacrifice. And what do we sacrifice? Here's the investment guide on the next page is we sacrifice time. We sacrifice our talents. We sacrifice our treasures, right? It takes time. It takes serving and sharing, and it takes money to reach people. That's just bottom line. That's just the way it is. So the question is, how are you investing your life? If, when you look at your life, as Jesus said, store up your treasures in heaven where they cannot be destroyed by moth or rust, or thieves cannot break in and steal them. Your heart will be where your treasure is. So he says the best investment is getting people to heaven. And the way that we do that is by time, by serving and sharing, and by financing it. So the question ultimately is, what are you going to do for the rest of your life? When you look at this percentage of where you're putting your time in the kingdom, where do you fall in that scale of percentage? How can you ramp that up so that we can be more powerful, more effective in what it is we're doing? And so the last question is on this section is, will anyone be in heaven because of you? Now, you may or may not know. You may be impacting people that you, you've never seen, they've never really said to you, Hey, uh, but you might be surprised when you get to heaven and people will come up to you and say, you know what, you had a profound impact on my life and one of the reasons why I'm here. But let's not just wonder about that. Let's, let's get engaged in the hearts and the lives of our community and people beyond our community so that we make sure that happens. So I close this with, this is not in your book, um, so you can go to the blank page in the back of your book. I close this with five reasons, I think, over the years I've discovered in my own life, in the hearts and lives of other people, five reasons why we are very hesitant in sharing the gospel with people. And here's the first one, because we are ashamed of the gospel. Now, we wouldn't say that. But the gospel is, Paul said in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation. We are ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is offensive. It just is. And there are reasons why it is offensive. Look, Paul wouldn't say, I'm not ashamed, but the very fact that he said that it indicates that some people are going to be tempted to be ashamed to share the gospel because the gospel is offensive. I'll give you some ways that it's very offensive. Number one is the gospel tells us that we're spiritual failures. When, I, when I'm talking to somebody and when somebody was talking to me, when they say, look, the only way to be saved is through this free gift that God is offering through his son, Jesus Christ, some people will say, that's not fair. That's narrow-minded. That's offensive to me. Why? Because it offends the moral and the religious who think their decency, their good works, gives them an advantage over other people. Like, you know, it's like, I, I don't need all grace. I've got my works here. Maybe a little grace to push me over the top. And so when you say, no, 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 that's... There's the only way you can be saved. The only way we can have a relationship with our creator is through his son, Jesus Christ. We have nothing to bring to the table. That's offensive. People push back on that. The gospel tells us that we're so wicked that only the death of Jesus could save us. That offends the popular belief in the innate goodness of humanity. Or what we, you know, just get in touch with your inner self, your inner beauty, and it'll all be okay. 
Another way the gospel is offensive is that the gospel tells us uh, all that so good, so-called good, sincere people will not automatically make it to heaven. This offends the modern notion that any nice person anywhere is going to make it. Um, and the gospel tells us that our salvation is accomplished by Jesus, his serving, his suffering alone, which offends people who want salvation to be easy life, an easy life and a comfortable life. In, other, in essence, it's this. Uh, I've done, I, I can't tell you how many funerals. Uh, I can't even begin to tell you over the last 30-some years. Um, never been to a funeral, never conducted a funeral, where the person laying in that casket wasn't going to a better place, regardless of how they ever lived their life. And see, this is why the gospel is offensive to people. When you share the gospel, they push back on that like, oh, but he was a good man. She was a good woman. You remember what Jesus said to the, um, the rich young ruler when he said that, used that word good? Jesus looked at him and said, there ain't nobody good but God. That's offensive. Right? So he kind of pushed back on that. What Jesus was trying to do is to reveal his, his deity that, listen, you're, you're looking at God in the flesh right here in front of you. And so he, he kind of pushed back on this. So one of the reasons why we hesitate because we don't want people to be offended, right? But the gospel is offensive by nature. But nonetheless, we don't have to be offensive in giving it. It's just going to naturally be offensive when they hear it. God will take care of that. Number two is because of fear. We fear rejection. We fear of not being qualified. We fear failure. We fear alienating an existing friendship. We fear because we've had a, a bad experience in the past. There's a great difference between feeling fear and following fear. Fear is a disease. If you fear, you cannot walk even one step. In other words, when you remain in your comfort zone, this is where all your fear exists. And the only way you can move past that fear is to step outside that comfort zone. You know, when I was getting my driver's license, I was scared to death. Getting in a car with a state trooper, I've got to drive. He's watching every move that I make. Did I put on the turn signal at the right time? Did I not turn, you know, too sharp in the corner, which I did and which he flunked me the first time? But that's another story. Uh, so, you know, there's great fear and apprehension. But if I caved to my fear and I chose never to get outside my comfort zone, I would have never gotten my driver's license. I had to step out of my comfort zone, push against my fear, and move forward. What's well, the same thing when we are sharing Christ with others. Number three is because we've lost our sense of urgency and we've replaced it with complacency. I suggested in the very first message that during the course of this series that you would read Isaiah chapter 6. There are three points in Isaiah's experience with God that helps us. Um, the first one is that we need a genuine experience with the presence of God. Remember, Isaiah 6.1 says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord high and exalted, lifted up, and seated on his throne, and the train of his robe was filling the temple. In other words, Isaiah saw the presence of God, and he experienced the glory of God, which began the transformation process in his life. 
Sometimes it's in the deepest, darkest moments of our lives that we experience God in the most profound ways. And God always is wanting to do the deepest work in our hearts, and oftentimes that comes in those deep, dark valleys where we desperately need him. There have been times in my life when I've been so broken, but yet you see God in the brokenness, and he's filling you, and he's strengthening you, and he's comforting you, and he is equipping you, and he's preparing you for something different. And so the depth of your faith will never be any deeper than the depth of your walk with God. And so God was about to put a calling on Isaiah's life, and for Isaiah to respond to that calling, he had to take him deeper. He had to allow him to experience him. So rather than praying just by like rattling off our laundry list to God in Jesus' name, and please take care of that Lord for me while I do whatever it is I want to do. No, no, no. God wants, he wants what Satan wants from you. He wants your heart. He wants your presence. He wants you to be engaged in this walk with him. Kind of like from time to time, my wife would say to me, hey, um, Greg, you're, you're not with me. What does she mean by that? Well, babe, I'm here. I'm home. Well, I know you are. Your presence is here. Your, your body's here, but your mind's not. You, you, you're, you're somewhere else in your thought processes. And sometimes this is what our walk with God gets relegated to. You know, we're like, God's there. He's out there, but we're just really not conscious of it. And we're really not engaged with him. And so this is what God wants to do. Jeremiah 33, 3 says, Call to me and I'll answer you and I'll tell you great and unsearchable things that you do not know. God invites us to, to, um, to discover him. And like Isaiah, oftentimes it comes in the most vulnerable times of our lives. And it leads us to the second thing. We, we, when we see God and we experience his presence, we have a genuine awareness of our sinfulness. Isaiah 6, 5 said, Woe to me, I cried, for I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. He says, I'm ruined. I'm undone. I'm nothing. In other words, I'm, we're horrible, pathetic, evil sinners in the eyes of God. Welcome to First Baptist Church where we come to to make you feel better about yourself. <laughs> Most Christians know about God but don't really know him, which is why we struggle surrendering ourselves to him. But when you see yourself from God's perspective, pre-Christ, then it brings us to the third point, and that is we need a genuine understanding of God's grace. What happened? What was God's response to Isaiah? Then one of the seraphim flew me with, to me with a coal, a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt has been taken away and your sin atoned for. In other words, your lying lips are forgiven. Your lustful attitude, your self-centered thinking, your anger outburst, your secret sin has all now been cleansed because God took something from the altar. And so what was offered on the altar on our behalf, this is why we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, is the Lord Jesus Christ where God's love and justice collided the cross beams of the cross so that you and I, guilty sinners, could be made clean and whole and usable experience God's grace. 
And God never called those of us in church to maintain the institution of a church. He called us to complete his mission. So our question should always be, how can I take the resources and the opportunity God has given me to help people find Jesus? You remember what Isaiah's response was? God said, whom shall we send? Who's going to go for us? He said, here am I. Here am I, Lord, send me. I'm just challenging all of us that every single day to deepen our walk with God and allow God to sift through our motives and to sift through our hearts as David prayed in Psalm 139 and, and to root out of us our anxious thoughts and our anxious ways that, that we might walk his pathway and ask God to use us to be a blessing in someone's life. I mean, think about this. If God in one fell swoop answered all the prayers that the members of this church prayed last week, how many new people would be in the kingdom? We've got to reorient ourselves. Number four is I believe that many Christians don't share the gospel because we're just not convinced that there is a hell, <laughs> that people are actually going there. Just by conversations. Because when it's your loved one, you know, when it's your Aunt Susie, your Uncle Bill, it's just hard for us. And so um, it's very difficult for humans uh, to distinguish between fantasy and, and real, you know, reality. So this is why people say, well, they're going to a better place because nobody wants to face the reality that there could be a hell and therefore we just rationalize, we just fantasize that everybody's going to a better place and it helps alleviate us of the sense of guilt and shame that we may have that perhaps I was the only Christian in that family and I never shared my faith and who knows where Aunt Susie or Uncle Bill or someone else is. And number five, I don't want to be that person. I just want to go along with culture to get along. I don't want to be that person that every time they see me, it's like, oh, there's, there's Greg. He's going to tell me about Jesus. I got, to, I got to head the other way. Now, I hope that you've gotten through this teaching. This is not about hounding people. This is about loving people in practical and real ways, sharing your story, and allowing God to open up the door of opportunity to share the gospel. The future of this church is in our hands. People just don't come off the streets and into this building. That's a rarity. Um, if this church is going to survive into the future, if we're not out there sharing, if we're not reaching people, it's just a matter of time. There won't be any of us here, right? Time is against us. But people, I have discovered, are really far more interested in talking about spiritual things than you would give them credit for if you just simply approach it in the right way. Every follower of Jesus is called to leverage his or her life for the Great Commission. So we want to celebrate that through partaking in the Lord's table. And we're going to sing, and I'm going to do close us out with a, a prayer of commission. Commissioning our church that every time we leave this building, that we would be come to the realization that we are on our mission field. We are on mission. Where you work, where you live, where you go to school, wherever it is you are, we are on mission and we have been called 
to use our time, to use our talents, and to use our treasures to help people find Jesus to be Lord and Savior of their life. So here's the gospel in four words as displayed through this, where we take the cup and the bread. Jesus used these two elements to symbolize his body and his blood. So if you, if you, if you need one of these, Sam's back here. Um, Jesus in my place. Jesus in my place. You might think of it this way. Jesus did not just die for you. He died instead of you. He suffered your curse so that you could inherit his righteousness. That's what the blood, the shed blood, cleansing us of our sin. This is what it did for Isaiah when it says that, you know, the tongs, the coal off the altar. And so representative of the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus applied to our lives. Jesus was clothed with shame. Hebrews tells us, so that one day you and I might sit in a seat of honor. He's the one who put us there. Not that we could reach that on our own. The Bible says that he was struck down in Isaiah 53 so that you and I could be lifted up. The Father turned his face away from Jesus so that he could turn his face towards us. When Jesus was on the cross and cried out, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? Jesus lived the life that you were supposed to live and died the death you were condemned to die so that you and I could have the reward of eternal life in the presence of God for all of eternity. You see, God didn't set his justice against sin aside. He simply turned it in on himself. And that's why he adorned himself in flesh, human flesh, and came into the world. So as we take the bread, it's a reminder that Jesus clothed himself with a human body. And he took back to heaven something that you and I will not ever take back. He took back into heaven, in that human body, his scars. You know, when God resurrects your body and makes it perfect and new, there will be no scars. You may have scars now from accidents or surgeries. Jesus will be the only one with scars on his body to remind us that we are there because of God's divine grace. So let's eat of the bread and thank him for that. And the cup represents the blood of Christ. Jesus acted as our substitute Substitution was a very important concept in the Old Testament and flowed into the New Testament. Jesus took our place. He drank the cup of God's wrath. He shed his precious blood so that you and I could have our sins forgiven and forgotten, cast as far as from the east as to the west and plunged in the sea of forgetfulness. So that when God looks at you as a follower of Christ, he does not see your sin. He sees the righteousness of Christ. And he will always see the righteousness of Christ. And so God signed and sealed us through his Holy Spirit that what he began, he will complete until the day of redemption. So let's celebrate.
and let's sing.